Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. The Guardian. Welcome to the fourth of five podcasts showcasing the nominees for the British Podcast Awards 2018. I'm Rihanna Dillon, and today we're going to look at the nominees that are passionate about everything from football to fighting, as well as interviews about a huge range of topics. And kicking things off, we'll discover podcasts on arts and culture. Let's tuck in. We start with books. The first nominee is Literary Friction, a podcast about literature and ideas hosted by friends Carrie Plitt and Octavia Bright. Each episode takes a different theme, anything from resistance to coastlines to corpses. They've interviewed well-known names, including Carl Uwe Knaus-Gord, alongside breakout debut authors such as Rennie Edo-Lodge. And here's a clip from their interview with Irish author Sally Rooney. The first thing I wanted to ask you was the title of the novel, Conversations with Friends. Mm -hmm. um, we have themed our show Conversations this month, and I think it's appropriate not not just because it's the title of your novel, but because Conversations is such a big part of this novel itself. Sure. But how did you come to that title, and why did you want Conversations to be central to people's understanding of this novel? Um so I came to the title, it sort of came to me one day. Uh, and then I, I have a real, when I'm writing a novel, I get into a real sort of magical thinking phase where if something comes to me easily, then I attach a huge amount of significance to it and think that it sort of augurs something about the project. So when this idea came to me, I felt full of like complete joy. And I was like, yes, this is it. This is the title this book has been searching for. And it was quite early on in the project. So it gave me a sense of like a weird sense of momentum that I had managed to come up with a title that I felt summarised something about it. And so I was so attached to it in that kind of um, mystical way that I didn't really examine what it was about that um, that appealed to me so much. So I think there's the conversations element and obviously a lot of the book is dialogue. I mean, like open it to any random page and it's more than likely kind of half of it will be characters talking. Um, and a lot of the momentum of the plot comes, I think, from those exchanges and what they tell us about the dynamics between the characters. Um, and then the other element of the title is obviously friendship. And I think one of the big concerns of the book is how do we define friendship and 
um, how do we sort of categorize our relationships and um, sort of exploring the ambiguities of friendship. So something about that I felt was just the right title for the book. And then when I fixed on it, I was never going to let it go. <laughs> also, you talk about Momentum and it's a book that has, for me anyway, such a fast pace to it. I devoured it. You know, it was incredibly compelling. These voices are so, I mean, I can still hear them. You know, I feel like I'm in conversation with Francis and Bobby quite, quite a lot, <laughs> which makes me sound like a loon. But anyway, um, but the, the kind of the pace of it, I wondered, um, was it a story that came to you in, in a very fast kind of mythical way? Yeah, I it it came to me incredibly quickly and I wrote the first draft really fast. Um so and the first draft was really long, a lot longer than this. Um and I wrote it over about three months. So it was almost like obviously the book is about a love affair and it was almost like a love affair with the novel. <laughs> I was like it was on my mind all the time and it was all I wanted to focus on. I was writing for like silly hours during the day and into the night. Um so it's it's funny, obviously. I, having written it, have no idea how pacey it is because I know exactly what's going to happen on every page. But it's something that I do hear from people who've read it, that their experience of it is that it's quite fast moving. And it's funny for me because my experience of writing it was that way. So maybe somehow that transmuted itself into the prose and that's, yeah. Next, we have a podcast making its return to the nominees, Soundtracking with Edith Bowman. Each episode features a filmmaker and their love for music, including directors, writers, producers, composers, music supervisors and actors. Presented by Edith, she talks to her guests about their influences, both professionally and personally. Here's a bit of her interview with Guy Ritchie. And this is probably the first film where contemporary music hasn't been... Predominant. Well, not, no, I wasn't going to say predominant, but an option, I really. I up there, didn't I? You're quite did. good at filling in my gaps. Oh, it's fine, we're doing it the opposite now, you're <laughs> filling in my gaps. <laughs> it wasn't an option, really, but it was because you still used existing music, but skewed it. There's the track Wild Wild Berry. Yeah. It's used on the trailer, but it's also on the soundtrack now. Yeah, it is. Um, I like all that. That's very Sam old Lee. stuff. I like Sam very much. Young man from hunting faint and weary What is that, my lord, my And he has this whole Lorik tradition thing down there, way of singing songs. Yeah. I'm not going to do it because it's quite embarrassing. Sing us a song, Guy. <laughs> um, I'm quite good at Irish songs. Are you? Yeah. Like a party it, piece well, type sort of. thing? Yeah, okay. Rocky Road to Dublin. In the merry month of May, from me home I started, left the girls into my nearly broken heart. Saluted your father, dear, kissed me, darling mother, drank a pint of beer, my teeth and tears, I scalded enough to reap the corn, leave where I was born. Got a sad black font to banish, boasting goblin, a band new pair of bogs, rattled over the box, frightened all the dogs, the rocky road to W123 for five. Hut there. Well, in the merry month of May, from me home I started, left the girls into my Guy Ritchie on soundtracking with Edith Bowman. Next we have The Invisible College, which last year launched as a podcast for BBC Radio 4. The idea behind the show is that if you're going to learn to write, you want to learn from the best. From Ernest Hemingway to Virginia Woolf to Ted Hughes. 
Presenter Cathy Fitzgerald uses extracts from literature and makes them into short lessons on subjects like character development, plot, editing and so on. This is part of Lesson 10, Find Your Story. In the morning frost, the cats step slowly. The tree looks like a dog barking at heaven. Prayer beads on the holy book. My knees are cold. I can remember the first time I heard these recordings of Jack Kerouac. In my medicine cabinet, the winter fly has died of old age. It was a summer evening, about a decade ago. I had a tiny one-room flat with a city view. I used to sit on the windowsill, half in, half out, with a whiskey and a late-night cigarette, watching London's lights come on. I love the humanness and the immediacy of hearing Kerouac read. He's not a dead author anymore. He's a brilliant, clever friend. A mind to engage with. A scintillating, irreverent, one-off teacher to listen to. Drunk as a hoot owl, writing letters by thunderstorm. And that's the idea behind the invisible college that the great authors of the past have plenty to teach us, both about writing and about life. That was The Invisible College by BBC Radio 4. Now we have a fourth Culture Podcast nominee, the Two Shot Podcast. In this show, Craig Parkinson, one of the bad guys from Line of Duty, goes to an actor's house and chats about the realities of their job. They've had some big names, such as Vicky McClure, Neil Morrissey, Tamsin Althwaite and Joe Gilgan, telling their acting stories. This is an extract featuring Steve Everts, star of Ken Loach's movie Waiting for Eric, describing an unfortunate event in a Mancunian pub. No, I got stabbed before that. There was a heavy stabbing. OK, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Pull the brakes on. Right, Let's okay. go back to this. What happened? What, with the stabbing? Yeah. OK, with the stabbing, that, that was 1987. So I've been at Abram Moss. That's right, we were trying to get our equity cards. So we, I was working with these uh, a musician, but we were doing a bit of sketches at um, this wine bar called Hamilton's in Presswich as well. Me and my mate, we used to do a sketch every week. Anyway, <laughs> every Monday. So one, month, one Sunday night, it was Mother's Day actually, Mother's Day, 1987, never forget it. I went down to Salford with my girlfriend, the mother of my two girls now. Uh, anyway, went down to Salford, my mum, Mother's Day, took my mum to this pub, had a drink with her. My mum went home, me and my girlfriend stayed. I ended up getting stabbed through the liver, lung and the diaphragm and getting my throat cut and ended up on a life support machine. 
How <laughs> did, did that come about? I'll tell you. We were in the pub. But, uh, I'm not going to say the pub. We were in the pub anyway. No, we can always cut it out, mate, don't worry. We are in the pub. My mum, me and my girlfriend. My mum went, because she didn't live far away. We were in, like, this small box room. It was opening. It had a, a rail, not a balcony. It was like the other room was maybe a foot lower. We were there. There was a, these lads in, probably about eight or ten of them, on the corridor where you exit. My girlfriend went to the toilet. Apparently, one of them grabbed her yeah. on the way back. She told me, and I thought, what do we do about this? Remember, I'm in this enclosed space. There's another girl and a bloke sat here minding their own business. One of these lads just comes on this lad's blind side, just smacks him in the face. No reason, no build-up, not even who you looking at, mate. Totally blindsided him, knocked a poor guy off his chair. And they all had a good laugh about it. Steve Everts talking to Craig Parkinson for the Two Short podcast. And for the last nominee in the Best Culture category, we're going back to authors. In Writer's Routine, Dan Simpson chats to an author about their working day, how they motivate themselves, and the ins and outs of how they go about writing a book. In this clip, he speaks to Alex Ryder author Anthony Horowitz. You've used two words that I try to avoid scrupulously in my work. The first is average and the second is routine. Uh, I try not to have an average day. I try to have a good and excellent day, in fact, uh, and try to make every day a little bit different, which is difficult because at the end of the day, all I am doing is sitting in a chair writing pretty much from morning until night. Uh, But if you want to sort of get the sort of gist of it, I would say I get up around about 6.30, maybe 7. By and large, I don't eat breakfast. I don't do anything. I just have a bath. I go upstairs and I get... So I have a bath, I get dressed, I go upstairs uh, and uh, sit down at my at my desk. Everything in my office is very carefully geared around my work so that the moment I arrive, it's almost like I'm getting into the cockpit of a of a plane or a spaceship or something like that. I love the fact that I, I, I sort of almost feel like I'm building myself in for what lies ahead. And then I start writing normally from where I left off the night before. So often I'll have got to the end of a chapter and it's the next chapter, but I'm already ready for it. I've thought about it in my sleep, I've thought about it in my bed, and I'm really very eager to get into it. I tend to write with a pen, not with a, not with a computer. The first draft I always do with pen and nib and paper. And everything on my desk is sort of sorted and ready for me to, to you know, in place the, the correct pad, the correct pen that I'm using, every pen, a different pen for each novel. Um, uh, the notes that I have, my notebooks, the reference books that I need, everything is ready and set for this journey I'm about to make. So I sit down, I start writing. Um, I will work until, well, whenever, really. I mean, it depends. This morning, having said that, I I got up at sort of seven, but I was out walking the dog at nine o'clock. I have a a, a black uh, Labrador Staffy cross, which I got from Battersea, very much part now of my working routine. I went out with him this morning for two hours from about, when was it? 9.20 till about 11.30. And in that time, what was I doing? I was walking the dog, but I was also thinking about the next sections of the Alex Ryder short story, which is what I'm working on today. So that walk was part of my work. Anthony Horowitz speaking to Dan Simpson, ending this look at the best British culture podcasts of 2018. The next category we have for you is best sport. Experts in their field, analysing and discussing from every angle their favourite topic. First, we have a podcast that talks about everything rugby. 
Brian Moore's Full Contact features some big names joining the former England player to debate and deliberate rugby. In this clip, Brian is in full flow. If you are fighting a battle year on year to go up, problem is, you don't know you're going to win the championship until right near the end, by which time, how do you contract players, even if they're available? Yeah. You know, because unless you're like Bristol and can afford and you can get the players who want to do this, to sign contracts to play in the championship for a year and then with the expectation of coming up, you're always behind the ball. And therefore, even if you've got a good setup, you've got an automatic handicap against, you know, the teams that are, are already there. And I'm not saying get rid of it totally. So I'm saying it can be seamless. I'm just saying if you limited it to, say, every three years, then then both teams in the championship and the Premiership, could plan their operations. They could give the young players the, t- the game time in the first 18 months, which they can't now because they're always afraid that if you get it wrong and you go down, mm. you're going to lose a load of players, you'll lose a load of money. So you don't, you don't take a chance from a kid on the academy. You get someone who can do it and you know you can do it. So I think, just think the actual reality, whatever you say about the romantic notions, is if, unless you can solve those, unless the people who are, are calling for this continuation of seamless game can can suggest problems out of what is actually reality, then they ought to shut up, actually. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and look, I felt, yeah, London Irish were always going to be on the back foot this yeah. season. And and the likelihood is now they'll get relegated and then they will be like Bristol, the only team that really have got the the, the, the ability to go back up and, in the Premiership. But it's going to cost them a fortune and then they'll be favourites to go down if again. They, if, they, if they're backers, and I know they're backers really well, he's a good, good friend of mine, you know, the main one has been trying to get other sponsors in. If they can't do that and they simply say, I can't afford to do this, then a club goes, effectively. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, do you, do, I'm saying to, the, to the, you know, these romantic rubber do you want that? Because that is the reality of it. Well, that effectively has happened in the part. You yes, know, if you go London back Welsh. to Oral and London Welsh, yep. and, you know, and then when we had the amalgamation of Richmond Scottish and then Irish, people will say, know. "Oh, it's a shame." He said, "No, it's not a shame. Actually, you could have done something about this, yep. but you didn't want to because you prefer the romantic notions of, you know, the what about the next extra? What about the next Worcester? Well, actually, they're not there. No, they're not there. And if under a system which I advocate, you, they could do it in a more planned way. They would still have the opportunity to be the next Exeter or the next Worcester, but it would solve a lot of the problems. And uh, I just, you need to get real, really. You got, you um, got my vote, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, the World Cup is coming up. Um, I just I think it was a great shame that England, uh, I don't know who does these fixtures, didn't play New Zealand in the Autumn Internationals because I'm still slightly unsure as to where England are on the development path. I know I'm fully confident that in the first 18 months of Eddie Jones' reign, the trajectory was upwards continually. They were making strides. I don't know whether they've continued to make those um, because they couldn't play against the best in the world or the injuries and the depth of the squad has been widened because they've seen the players can come in and and, and handle the rugby. I've still got a feeling that in terms of the game they want to play um, and the players to play it, we are not necessarily um, conclusive in, 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 in where they are. Brian Moore sort of in conversation with Ben Ryan on Brian Moore's full contact for the Telegraph Media Group. Now, here is a football podcast, but not your ordinary football podcast. It's called Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? And all they talk about is professional football in the 1990s. Comedian Josh Widdicombe is joined by Chris Gull and Michael Marden to ask the real questions, such as which 90s footballers have been spotted on water slides? Here's a clip from when things got tearful. 
But do, do you buy into Italian Ninety changing everything? Well, I mean, back to '66, Bobby Charlton cried in '66. Did he? I don't remember. Yeah, that. he absolutely sobbed when they won the World Cup. That didn't. No. There's no embouchoirs, Martin, 1966. <laughs> Must have been the comb-over, I think. Yeah. When, you, when you see a man with a comb-over crying, you just think... Well, but Bobby Charlton's comb-over, when he played, and I saw him, I saw him play many times live, it, would, it wouldn't stay combed over. It would extend. I mean, it would come out to its full length. And I think, you know the theory that a cat uses its whiskers to judge whether it can get through a gap or not? I think this is how his mazy dribbling was done, that he, he could absolutely calculate whether he had space to get between two defenders. <laughs> so, obviously, there is an argument that <clears throat> fantasy football and fever pitch ah, uh, yes. are, as well as Gaza crying, are kind of the other things that would be kind of labelled with changing football in yes, that way. I think Would you that, buy into I, that? I, um, I've heard that said. Obviously, I find that slightly gut-wrenching <laughs> because I I wish, in a way, it was still um, bothrel and meat pies yeah. and people smoking woodbines. Yeah. Um, was it Frank McAvenny who called it working-class theatre or something? Yeah. I once got condemned for saying... Um, one thing I liked about football hooliganism was it kept the middle classes away from <laughs> oh crime, my God. which is a, a, perhaps a foolish thing for me to say. If you want help with uh, making a meal less dry, you might want a tip from this other column in Match Magazine <laughs> in which Nigel Martin lists his top five drinks. <laughs> No, I was thinking what my top five... It's a difficult thing to do because at different occasions. But obviously, Nigel Martin, his top five favourite drinks, he covers... Well, why don't we turn it into a game? Do you want to have a get? We'll do it like Family Fortunes. I was just trying yeah, to think. They're, they're numbered what... one to five. I'm going to presume that's in order. I don't know whether... The... Okay. Michael? Well, he's... he's No offence to Nigel Martin. He always struck me as a very bland... <laughs> yes. Vanilla kind I, of guy. I really don't think you're about to be surprised, though. <laughs> I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for water. No, <laughs> no. I can see Nigel Martin with a flat cap and a dog in his local pub drinking a stout. You just heard Josh Widdicombe, Chris Gull, and Michael Marden on "Quickly Kevin Will He Score?" Available wherever you get your podcasts. The next sports nominee is Fight Disciples. Adam Catterall and Nick Peat interview fighters to talk through their favourite sport and celebrate British boxing. Here's a clip from their interview with Sylvester Stallone. Can I ask you to share one anecdote with me right now? And I'm, I'm going to point you in the direction of the early 70s when you were writing Rocky and getting, getting it, attempting to get it all commissioned. I want to talk about the dog. Okay. Well, I was walking by a, a, this, this fellow on the street years earlier had this dog. He goes, you know, I don't want this dog. The dog poops too much. And I had no money. I was basically almost homeless. I was making about $40 a week through uh, an usher gig. And I took the dog. So I became very, very close to the dog. So as I was writing, and I was beginning to write Rocky and everything else, my only friend was the dog. I didn't even have a telephone. I, did, I, I never went to a, on a date, to a bar, to a dance. Believe it or not, I was so isolated. I couldn't afford it. Wow. But the dog was my buddy. So eventually I made it to California, and uh, and this is just before I had written Rocky. We were starving, and I just got married, and uh, it got down to the point there was nothing left in the bank, and I was about to be evicted from this house out in the valley, 
the kitchen because the kitchen was the size of a closet. Anyway, it was it was a rough one. So I said, "Honey, I got a. We can't afford dog food. We can't even afford to feed the dog." So I went to a Seven Eleven, which is a kind of a quick store where you just pull right in and uh, put up a for sale sign. And this guy came along and said, "I'll give you forty dollars for your dog." And it killed me, but I, I had no choice. I couldn't support it. Well, <laughs> see what happened. Um, I, I went back, and about six months later, I started writing Rocky, and then I wrote a part in there for the dog. I don't know why. Even though I didn't own the dog, I just felt so lonely for the dog. So I go to track the guy down, and he doesn't want to sell the dog. He goes, well, my kids have become attached to it. I said, your kids are grown they let me live in the house. He goes, well, I've become attached to it. I said, I understand. And um, he was uh, kind of a very small guy. Actually, he could ride the dog. He was small. So he became attached to the dog. So he goes, um, I want to be in the movie. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I want to be in the movie. So I literally had to write him a part of the movie and give him $14,000. No way! Yeah, you, right. you, you bought the dog back for fourteen thousand dollars. Fourteen thousand yeah. dollars. Wow! And you gave him you gave him a part in the in the film that got a best picture at the Oscars that year. <laughs> yeah, don't tell me love is blind, don't we? <laughs> that was Fight Disciples, last year's winner of Best Sports Podcast, reigning champions, if you will. Now we're going to let the cycling podcast take you for a spin. Sorry, not sorry. This is not just a chat about bicycles. These guys go to the world's biggest races, interviewing riders and laughing at, or with, cycling. Here's a clip from when they were live at the Tour de France. Where are we, Lionel? We're in Drizzly Dusseldorf. A nice bit of alliteration to start our coverage of the Tour de France. I don't want to be downbeat, but it is damp. Yeah, well, that was Lionel Burney. I'm Richard Moore, and we're joined at this year's Tour de France, delighted to say, by Francois Tomaso. Hi guys, with a cap on my head, you know, to, in, in, unlike you guys, well, probably more used to rain than I am. Well, I don't think you could look any more Gallic, Francois, but you, you've managed it today. You've been a, a regular on the podcast last couple of years, but you're, you're joining us every, every day this year, apart from, I think, one day when French labour laws require you to take a day off or, or go on strike. Yeah, well, it's not exactly a stripe, but uh, yeah. Well, normally, if I if I respected French law, I'd be obliged to take uh, a couple of days on, uh, days on during the, the tour, which I will do. But unfortunately, not uh, you know to rest and do nothing, but to uh, to actually work for not the opposition, but for another company, namely the tour organizers. Okay, well, we can we can we can cope with that when it when it happens. Uh, we're we're sp- order. When, when's my day off? Well, Lionel, today's your special day, of course, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's my birthday. And as uh, the first rider, Elie Gesbert of Fortuneo, um, the French team. <laughs> Fortuneo, the French team, who changed their name overnight. They did change their name overnight. And, and you could probably hear the, <laughs> yeah, ticker tape, hear the ticker tape in my brain trying to remind me what they've changed their name to. The I, French team. <laughs> they, <laughs> Fortuneo Oscaro. Is that right? Well, a rider just rode past us. So well, well done. There we are. That, I mean... That, Perfect advertising for Fortunao. No longer Fortunao, vital concept. They've changed the name. Anyway, Elie Jasbert was the first rider down the start ramp at quarter past three this afternoon. It's his 22nd birthday, and they were singing happy birthday to him at the start. Amazing, because it's your 22nd birthday as well. well it's actually, I'm 20 years older than... Uh, 
the, the French rider from the French team. That's right. It's a great start. <laughs> so we're we're talking. Richard Moore, Lionel Burney, and Daniel Freeb of the Cycling Podcast. And last but not least in this category is Who Are You? This podcast takes its listeners to a different football club every episode and hear about it through the fan stories. In each episode, Ben and David try to understand what it means to support the featured club. And in this clip, we hear the insight of co-producer David Cowlishaw after his visit to the Millentor Stadium. A German second-tier club with a trophy cabinet that would delight a tired silver polisher. FC St Pauli are at first glance a fairly ordinary side. The other Hamburg side, HSV, have a huge stadium and have actually won things. St Pauli are just the smaller club in Germany's second biggest city, representing the St Pauli district of Hamburg, home of the infamous Reeperbahn. However, those with more than a passing interest in German football know that St Pauli are far from ordinary. This is a club that is followed all around the world, but not because of the football, because of the ethos of the club itself meaning the club's influence spreads well beyond the terraces of their home ground, the Millentor. Mike Krukemeyer is a lifelong St. Pauli fan and presents the Millentor podcast. My name is Mike. I uh, write for the St. Pauli fan scene Der Übersteiger, which has been published first time in 1993. Normally, if you talk to someone who is somehow in football, uh, the good thing is that you don't need to describe St. Pauli because nearly everyone in the world has somehow a definition of what St. Pauli is. And this is really an exception because we never won anything. So if you ask people for other clubs who are in Division Two in whatever country, Normally, if you are outside of that country, no one has really a clue what this club stands for. And this is totally different with St. Pauli. We are well known for being political on the left wing. In the end, I think uh, St. Pauli is one of the very, very few clubs in the world that are really, really famous for never winning anything but for their supporters and also their political attitude. This is more than just a football club. St Pauli weren't born left-wing. Instead, the fans' movement was created out of a number of factors, one of them being the squatter movements in Hamburg in the early 80s, another being a reaction of the prevalence of neo-Nazi hooligans at German football matches. Before the end of the 80s, uh, the club was just a small club in a big German town and, and only 2,000, 3,000 people were going to the games in the second division and there was a huge gap to, to the local rivals and, and you never would have imagined that this club could become that popular in the end. That was Mark Palmer, the founder of the FC St Pauli, ending that clip from the Who Are You podcast and our look at the best sporting podcasts of the year. Our final category today features a variety of subjects, stories and guests. It's Best Interview, supported by IPDTL. First, we have a podcast that's cropped up way back in episode two in the best entertainment category. Griefcast is about death and how we deal with it. This is a clip from Carrie Ad Lloyd's interview with Robert Webb. I lived with her and my stepdad Derek and my father, who she divorced when I was five, and I had a you know they he and I never really saw eye to eye, and uh, and I would see him at sort of birthdays and Christmas and you know days when he'd trust himself to come around and be nice, uh, and he came round because he'd sort of worked out that I didn't 
no and he'd had a couple of pints and he sat me down I you know I got off the bus from school and I sat down and there's Derek and dad in the kitchen round the table together which was a novel sight and yeah. not a welcome one and sort of you know I was immediately uh, on red alert and he said uh, now now boy your mum's poorly it's terminal <laughs> and, that, and that's that's how I found out and then you know in the book I describe he immediately starts talking to Derek about whether he's going to need to get a cleaner in <laughs> because because uh, he's just looking around the kitchen going because it's hard isn't it mate it's hard keeping a place clean and uh, well Josie who does my house uh, I give her a fiver uh, she does a couple of hours and uh, and Derek starts haggling about you know how, <laughs> how much he's going to need to pay Josie uh, so, were you of, just standing there do you just, remember just, just standing there, there and like... they sort of broke up and they noticed I was crying Oh and my then God. sort of later that day I, I talked to her and she said, I'm sorry, Paul's always been a pen in the arse and I'm sorry you had to find out like that and I should have told you myself. But um, but then we had a conversation. So um, you managed a conversation with her? Yeah. What was that like? Were you able to express yourself or did you feel too emotional? She, I was, well, very emotional, but I was trying to keep it together because so was she and I thought it was only polite to, <laughs> to sort of match that, if you like. And she said... Uh, now, is there anything you'd like to ask me or anything you'd like to tell me? And in the book, I say, you know, I felt a thousand future selves lean in with interest. Yeah. I mean, what is this mega question or yeah. this statement apart from I love you? And I didn't back myself to say that without without breaking down. So um, I told her the thing that was most important to me at the time about being 17, which was... <laughs> um, a lot of people seem to assume that I'm having sex all the time, but would it surprise you if I said that I was a virgin? <laughs> And she st she started to smile, but she didn't want to look like she was taking the piss. And she said, I won't say I'm surprised, I won't say I'm unsurprised, but you'll catch them up. And I said, yeah, but all my, all my mates have got girlfriends. And she said, you'll catch them up and overtake them in everything. Robert Webb speaking on Griefcast. Next, we have a podcast that has been described as the LGBTQ plus Woman's Hour. Homo Sapiens is a conversation between film director Christopher Sweeney and national treasure Will Young about matters close to their hearts, everything from cake to Will's showbiz disasters. Every week, we meet an inspirational LGBTQ plus figure or ally. Here's an extract with The Guardian columnist and author Owen Jones. Why did you wait till your third year to come out? Hmm, sort of scenic really, didn't I? Mm. Um, well, I... I took pretty much the same... It's weird, isn't it? Second year. You came out the second year. Why did you come out? Because I meant to come out first year, and then it was halfway through, and I was like, oh, I can't do it halfway through. I'll no, that's love true. the summer, and then, you know what I mean? And then you've got a bit of time away, and then... You need a strategic coming out time. No, sorry, I meant to come out before I went to uni, that was it. And then oh. I got there, and I was like... Because mm. you know. that's good, because then it's clean break. Exactly. Start, then you start as a gay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Rather than go, oh, now I've got to kind of like... Update everybody but based I, on... Yeah, but I went with a friend and she knew... So I had to tell her and then I never got around to telling her. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking of coming out. You don't just come out once, you have to come out all the fucking time. And it's mm. uh, tedious. No, I mean, I just didn't want to be gay. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the brutal truth of it. And I convinced myself I was bisexual. Mm. By now, gay later. It's terrible for genuine bisexuals, that. People like me are problems. But um, I started going out with a girl at the beginning of first year. So I went out with her for over a year. <laughs> it's fine now, she's... Uh, She's married to a better-looking Italian who's heterosexual, whatever. I went out with her for over a year, and um, and then I just didn't want to do. I just didn't want to do it. Mm. And I thought the reason I came out was because I met this guy who was captain of his rowing team. Then when I started going out with him, there was a kind of logical. Might as well come out now, I suppose. 
Uh, and that's what I did. I remember doing it at someone's birthday, and she was recovering from viral meningitis, and she was well annoyed. She was like, you've literally stolen uh, the attention from my birthday party when I was suffering from a horrible disease. But people then, they were like, I, I, some, I remember like some girl I was friends with said, oh, that's great, Owen, now we can go shopping. I hate shopping. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, why do I want to go shopping? Because I'm gay. Uh, but anyway, so th- th- that was it. And it was weird, because obviously coming out, because I had a girlfriend for ages, so mm. it was a weird... Ugh. To bring you back on something I felt you skimmed over and Never. we've all missed it, I think. <laughs> so your first boyfriend was captain of the rowing. Of his college. He was captain of his, his so college. So there are people like that who exist. They do exist. Yes. They do Gosh, exist. That brings hope, doesn't it? But How was the reaction when you came out? And no one was like, you disgusting faggot. Mm. Uh, that would have been annoying. But you get levels, only it's of people being quite patronising, asking kind of mm. bizarre questions as though you suddenly metamorphosize into some bizarre alien. Do you really fancy men? Why do you... And then the stuff like... Because everyone uses the word gay and stuff, going, oh, that's so gay. But I remember people doing that again. No, not in front of Owen. Not in front of Owen. <laughs> not in front of You're the left. You're frightening him. Uh, but I still... <laughs> all my friends were pretty much straight men. I mean, the vast majority were. And everyone was obviously fine. Yeah. You know, coming out is... It's one of these things, isn't it? You, as I said, you don't just come out once. You have to keep... Coming out, you come out to your friends, your family, workplace, new people you meet, um, and all the rest of it. Mm. For most people, anyway, um, unless they're publicly defined in the in the in the public eye as being a gay. So it is stressful, but I didn't get rejection. Just people struggle to know how to to respond if they've never had a gay friend before, and some of them found it like it, a weird eccentricity. You just heard guest Owen Jones with hosts Will Young and Christopher Sweeney on Homo Sapiens. Now here's another familiar face in the nominees. The Illusionist, the podcast by Helen Zaltzman about language, is up for Best Interview as well as Smartest Podcast. She focuses on why we use language in the way that we do. Oh, and it's funny too. Here's a clip of Helen's interview with Lauren Marks talking about her life-changing moment, a stroke at age 27. Words were everything. I mean, I just, it was all day, every day... Uh, on stage, off stage, on the page. Let's just go back to what happened to you. Oh, sure. How old were you? I was 27. Uh, In 2007, I was an actress and a director and a PhD student in in New York. Um, And there was absolutely no warning. I mean, I was actually performing on stage when it happened. I I went on stage to perform a karaoke duet (laughs) <laughs> what was the song? <laughs> it was Total Eclipse of the Heart. <laughs> Wrong organ. <laughs> I know, but it's okay to laugh because I just really am glad I didn't die doing that. So anyways, I was on stage, I was singing. Now I'm only falling apart. And I was up singing the song and then I was down Nothing I can do I collapsed immediately because it was not known to me at the time but an aneurysm had ruptured in my brain and it was emerging An aneurysm is a weakness in a blood vessel in the brain It's estimated that 1 in 50 people has such a weakness but most will never even know about it. Only about 1 in 25,000 aneurysms causes trouble. As she later found out, 
Lauren Marx had two aneurysms in her brain, and one of those was that one in 25,000. It ruptured, and she had a stroke. Karaoke interrupted. Lauren was taken to hospital. When she woke up, she had undergone brain surgery. But something else had changed. When I woke up in the Edinburgh hospital, I had very little language. Speaking, reading, writing were all dramatically affected. I probably only had about 40 or 50 words at my disposal. Lauren Marks speaking to Helen Zaltzman on The Illusionist. Next, we have interviews with people who aren't really household names, unless your house smells fantastic. Perfume pioneers included nine interviews with contemporary cult perfumers about their lives. It was released alongside the perfume exhibition in Somerset House and spoke to the perfumers about their work and themselves as artists in a way never before examined. Here's an interview with celebrity in the fragrance industry, Mark Buxton. Everybody can become a perfumer, I think. We all have a nose, we can all smell. It's like to become a musician. You, you have to learn the basics, you learn the notes, then you learn the accords, and then you learn how to compose, and from, you take it on from there. But what is the difference between a good piano player, a bad and an average piano player? We all have an ear, we all can learn it. It's their gift, or their talent, or their imagination or fantasy, and that is exactly the same with perfumers. The difference between a good perfumer, an, uh, an average and a bad perfumer, is that uh, when somebody gives you a theme, it can, be, it can be anything. Let's say blue. The brief is blue. Now, you can give this brief to ten different perfumers. Of course, you will get ten different, totally different interpretations out of that. But they are the majority of perfumers white sheet of paper which would not even know how to start. And they don't even know the difference between geraniol and citronilol. Sorry to say, guys, it's a very tough job and um, you need a lot of experience. It's a long way to get there and I learn every day. That's why a little respect as well. Uh, but a white sheet of paper, that's where it starts. Mark Buxton, a perfume pioneer. And the final nominee is the Comedian's Comedian podcast, a show that looks into the parts of comedy that aren't always funny, presented by Stuart Goldsmith. Here's an extract of his interview with Stuart Lee. The reason I did that about James Corden, this thing about James Corden, he's always saying how much he likes me, but he didn't stick up for me at the BAFTAs and he should have got the BAFTA off. Yeah. Graham, what, what, wait, James Corden... Was always, you know, was saying in interviews that he thought was really great, and people at the BBC were saying that he'd, he told them that I, that he wanted to do really like my show and everything. And I was at the, I used to do this bit on stage, but I cut it for time in the end. I was at the King's Head, working out the stuff for that series. In Kings in Crouch End, and and Pete Graham said to me, "Oh, you just show you know, James Corden wanted tickets, and he's rung me up, and I've let him in." And I went, "Oh, well, where's he sitting? Because if he's like." in the audience it'll really fuck it up because everyone will be looking at him I mean oh he's just sitting in the dark in the corridor bit and I thought well I don't want to talk to him because it'd be awkward for him as much as anything and also it'd be weird for the audience so I just sort of pretended not to notice him because I didn't want to have to have a conversation with him but I had to squeeze past him five or six times in and out of this thing 
then I then that's what made me think it would be funny to because I know he really did like me he'd come to this circuit gig so I thought it'd be really funny to moan about him liking me and to to say that he'd let me down by not fighting Graham Norton and stuff and apparently he was upset about it but I thought he would think it was funny but actually when you, when I thought he would think it was funny to be sort of to realise that his presence had sort of gone into this story and I do it with a lot of people that say that they like, that they like me I'm read about them and to be honest people do it do it to me I mean I really like The Fall and I don't know what Marky Smith thinks of me <laughs> at <laughs> well, all I mean, but he's always slagging me off on stage yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I went to see them in May this year and he did this sort of one 20 minute track which it was normally about 8 minutes but they extended it Massively, it seemed to me to accommodate a sort of three-minute attack on on me. There's people in the standing next to you. When you when you said, it made me laugh. To be honest, I thought it was funny. You know, when like, you said that you had the opportunity to talk to James Corden in that moment, yeah. and you didn't want to, yeah, is that? Is that kind of the crux of it? Like, you could yeah. have just popped in and said, "Hello, mate. I know yeah. you like me stuff. I know, but I'm going to do some stuff." It's much right. The problem is right. But if you're sort of if you're in the world of them, you can't operate as as freely. You know, you can't operate as freely because you're sort of compromised by your relationships with people. Stuart Lee in conversation with Stuart Goldsmith. That's the end of our rundown of the best interview, sports and culture podcasts. Come back tomorrow for our final instalment, where we reveal the last 15 nominees in this year's British Podcast Awards. And don't forget to check out the awesome podcasts of The Guardian at theguardian.com forward slash audio. I'm Rihanna Dillon. The producers are Chika Ayres and Matt Hill for Rethink Audio and the British Podcast Awards. Until tomorrow, goodbye. The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.